you're listening to Not Many of You Should Become Teachers, a podcast that explores the world of K-12 education as it intersects with the Christian faith. You might call us extreme moderates. We're skeptics who try not to be cynics and are allergic to cheap rhetoric. Welcome to the show. Everyone, welcome back to episode 30 some of Not Many of You Should Become Teachers. I can't uh, I can't even remember how many we've done. That's how awesome it's been. And we are joined with our first um, voice that is coming from a context that is teaching students younger than grade six. And actually, to be totally honest, I'm not tooting my own horn in any particular fashion, but that if I was not, <laughs> if I was not doing this show with you, Dave, we wouldn't have any voices beyond, well, actually, actually, we had Angela Fieldbrand, and she's a seventh grade teacher, but we, we don't have that many voices that are coming from uh, a K to, let's say, like an elementary K to seven context, so we are very thankful that we can broaden our horizons and listen to practitioners from um, areas outside of high schools and uh, maybe middle schools, so uh, we're very happy to have Juliet Hiller, fourth grade teacher, my own fourth grade teacher that's on the show with us, um, and maybe, well, I, maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit already and telling us a bit about yourself, but how about you introduce yourself and then tell us a little bit about who you are. All right, well, good afternoon. There you go. Good afternoon. Um, I'm an educator. I teach grade four. Um, I'm also a faculty associate at Trinity Western University, um, part-time. And uh, I oversee two student teachers in their fifth year practicum year. Yes, uh, Juliet, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast and to, again, as Riley was saying, to broaden broaden our voices out. You've listened to a little bit of our podcast, and you know we talk about sort of faith and learning, and uh, that's that's sort of the the core of what we do. Maybe you could give us a little picture of what it might look like in the context of uh, grade four, fourth grade. Um, we we've heard from some so many different voices, and we love to see what is similar. And I'm also interested to hear maybe what might be different for you. So, uh, fourth grade, faith and learning. When you hear that. What comes to mind? Hmm. Well, I don't think that um, I don't think faith and learning differs from grade to grade. I think that um, if you are teaching from a Christian worldview or a Christian perspective, that um, the goal is to live that authentically. Um, I consider it a great honor to integrate my faith into learning. So it allows me an opportunity to, you know, speak the word of God. Um, however, I think that to live that is what I'm trying to transcend um, and trying to bridge the, the speaking of the faith and the living of the faith. Um, I guess my priority in grade four is um, I said to capture their sense of wonder, which I think they still have when they're nine years old. Um, my hope in doing so is that they come to love, trust, and obey the Lord. Um, we talk about that all the time, that that's foundational to their relationship with God. Um, I think that those three aspects are imperative in a nine-year-old's kind of mind frame of understanding what it means to be a Christian. So they love the Lord, and what does that look like? I hope that in me loving them, they um, it, it's representative of God's love. Um, trusting God, what does that mean in a nine-year-old's world? Um, that often means when they're afraid or when they're sad or when they're discouraged. So, you know, those somewhat simplistic emotions, but they're very real when it's on the playground or um, experiencing something at home with family. Or, um, and I think obeying God, um, I, <laughs> I don't believe in a God who has lots of rules. Um, so I open our year with creating a code of cooperation rather than saying these are the rules of our classroom. And so I... I often feel Christian institutions are bound by these Christian rules um, that say they're taken from scripture, but 
they're often out of fear. They're, you know, don't do this because that looks messy or don't do this because it doesn't set a very good example. Um, so instead, we talk about a code that everybody can adhere to. Um, I, I love the medieval times just because I love stories and we, we tie fairy tales and such into our classroom. And so we talk about the knight's code and that they have a code to protect each other. They have a code to honor each other. They have a code to respect each other. And as Christians, I want those kind of relationships rather than fear-based and rather than ones that um, hold this high standard that I don't think God actually sets for us because he knows that we're frail and that we will continue to sin over and over again. Um, so I hope that I can introduce my students to a God that is endlessly gracious, that forgives over and over and over again, um, who you know comforts them when they're sad or when they feel shame or ashamed or embarrassed because these are all you know, pretty raw emotions for nine-year-olds. Um, and I try to do that by living it out in my own life. And you know, in a cl classroom context, you know, being gracious is giving second chances. Um, being gracious is um, reconciling, you know, kind of, um, you know, if there's a, a misunderstanding, you know, trying to hear each other's views um, and restore something that's broken and make it, you know, new again. Yeah, actually, this is tying in really well into the next question. I'm just thinking that so much of what you're talking about is translation, that when we look at <clears throat> the the concepts that we have or that we understand maybe as adults, followers of Jesus, that we can trust God uh, and that you approach that well in a grade four context, this is what this would look like. Let me translate that for you, that when you are afraid or ashamed, that's what this this may look like for you. Um, so in, um, in that same vein, uh, that since we talk about translation so much on this podcast, uh, what well, like th there's an example, but what type of translations do you have to make uh, for spiritual formation to be more accessible to fourth grade students? Okay, I, I was trying to um, define translation, um, and so you have you've done a good job of that. So that has clarified it a little bit better for me. Um, in my estimation, translation is an attempt to make sense of something. Um, and in making sense, your hope is that you're, kind of, you're changed and, um, and then you go out and make change, I suppose. Um, so most recently, this might be a little rabbit trail, most recently I've been curious about um, what's called revisionist history and I just learned that there's a revisionist theology I learned this at the conference that we were both at okay. recently at. Um, I love Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> um, I just love his mind. I love the way he thinks. Um, and he uses experience to retell history. And um, so when you pose that question of translation, um, I think translation is often experienced and seen from different perspectives. This is how I define translation. Um, and so I've been curious about how experience should inform our faith um, and the role that experience plays in our faith and the place of it relative to truth. So this sounds really large, especially when we're talking about grade fours. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the challenge was that I don't want experience to kind of trump truth. And yet, I love story, and my belief in faith is that um, we all have our story to tell, and it's often through story. We, we say, you know, it's a testimony that we share that um, we hope will lead someone to the Lord or hope will um, help us be more transparent. Um, so translating faith 
to nine-year-olds is understanding what um, makes sense to them and what is important to them and trying to um, trying to create a story that kind of captures that so that then they can learn obviously and learn really deep and rich and then be changed by it and grow from it and then actually do something with it so trying to bring it around to how I understood translation from from the beginning well thank you for sharing that I I'm almost going back to, to the first response you gave and sort of threading them together around this sense of wonder mm. and sort of ca capturing that or, or, or harnessing the captivation of a nine-year-old. And then this language of experience that, that you speak of as it, as it relates or corresponds to truth. And, and it got me thinking a, a couple things. One, just about the nature of, of our God, who God is, mm -hmm. who actually makes this translation effort through God. You know, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. So there's this dwelling. And if we could almost think of this idea of dwelling or, you know, the big theology word is incarnation. Yes. Uh, that we, we, we would be uh, incarnated in our various contexts. So you're with, you're with nine-year-olds. And uh, I spend my time with 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And what I so appreciated about what you said about wonder is sometimes the temptation, and I'm speaking mostly to secondary uh, high school educators, is we see it as, well, we're further down the, not in a progressive way, but further down the assembly line. And so that wonder has sort of maybe been lost or worn off. Mm. And now we're dealing with other questions and these types of things. Um, but I actually see more of the continuity because I, I've seen even today coming out of teaching a sense of that, that wonder and excitement. It's not nine-year-old excitement. It's not that same. I mean, there's a sense of maybe an in innocence or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I see what we're doing in, in that translation of that experience um, that we have, we have a God who is truth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we encounter through the experience of incarnation and in, in the lives and, and the, the experiences we have with others. So, uh, you know, every blessing to you in, in, a, in a grade four context. I can only imagine you speak of the emotional range um, that these yes. experience, uh, that these students have. And um, so, yeah, I was sort of threading those two things together. That was wonderful. Yeah, um, speaking of this wonder, like, and you talk about the continuum, you know, I have them at nine, you have them at 15. Um, I think that God continues to spark that wonder in us when we have whatever we want to call them, the God encounters or those God experiences, which... Um, the, sorry, I just learned this term that I have to share. Uh, thin moments is what <gasps> Celtic Christians used to call them, that they are moments in which the veil of God seems thinner. Yes. And that it's Such like we are one step closer to where, where heaven is. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we describe those as, you know, really feeling God or experiencing him. But yes, I love the thinness. It's, yeah. it's like the divide between heaven and earth mm -hmm. or between his majesty and us is less. Um, we, um, I do, it's originally called the Jesse tree. Um, I've, <laughs> I remember that from grade four. Do you remember that? Oh, 100%. Okay. Advent, of course. Um, I've recoined it to call it God's love story. Um, because I discovered the, uh, the Jesus Bible, um, mm. Jesus storybook Bible, Jesus oh, storybook yeah. Bible. And I read it now, of course, every year with my students, and I still tear up at the story that is woven through the story. Um, and the theme is that God is our rescuer, and he rescues us. Um, today, however, we, um, so we, we use a symbol to describe each of these major milestones of God rescuing his people through the Old Testament. And we talked today about um, how God asks us to do really weird things. And so we read the story of Joshua and Jericho and like how God turned everything on its head and you know, inside the wall they wanted them to fight and outside the wall God wanted them to just walk around this wall seven times and how weird that was and how weird it was that Moses was asked to walk through 
water that divided. And in sharing this different perspective, using these words like weird or um, God asking us to do crazy things, um, the wonder of the kids was sparked. And we talked about what God might ask them to do that's weird or that might not be comfortable. Um, and I think you've mentioned Bob Goff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to tie him in right now because yeah, I think sure. that's what he did for me. Um, I was given a photocopied first chapter of his second book and I read it and just I, I fell apart. It was one of those thin moments. It was... Yeah, Bob Goff is all about removing that fear, right? Because totally. because some of these things that that could be very weird um, might actually not be super weird, but they're actually they're so fear based to to put others first or to love other people. Yeah, completely, absolutely. I always describe to those who hadn't haven't read some of his work. I say he loves without any inhibitions. Like he just, he loves, and then he's got these like absurd stories that unravel because of it. And, um, and God has asked him to do so many weird things. And a lot of Christianity is fear-based as you referenced, Riley. And I loved reading, I still, I reference his work often because he, he gives the, gives us freedom to be weird and to remove all those fears and to let God take you through this process of loving somebody um, in a crazy way, a way that is very unconventional and that often surprises people because they're not used to being loved like this. And um, it is how Jesus loved. And we often try to make sense of that and how he would respond to questions or respond to, pe to people that um, were the outcasts or that were, you know, unconventional. And um, he, he just did it with abandonment. Like he just loved. And from that are the stories that we hold as truth, the stories that, um, that we reference in our faith and take from as examples. Um, so there's my, my little shout out to Bob Gott. <laughs> I could probably speak about him for forever. I think he, um, he also challenged me that I actually find loving quite easy. It's something that I really love to do. Um, but when I read that first chapter of his second book, I realized that um, I had all the people that I loved were lovely people and they were really easy to love. And so the challenge was choosing that prickly person or that person that, um, you know, even that child in your class that is um, just really rubs you the wrong way or that just pushes every button or that challenges on every front and how to take that challenge of, of loving them through those prickly moments and um, it's become my life mantra I think mm. is to to love really hard and to love really good um, it's really easy to love my husband my children, you know, they're, they're part of me, but um, there are colleagues that are sometimes difficult when you come head to head and you feel very passionately about something and they feel passionately and then you take it personally and there's all these translations probably that happen. Yeah. And um, so, yes, his work is ever reminding me to be um, just to push through on loving even when um, there's a lot of brokenness in, in the midst. Further to that, however, yeah. I've also been challenged that, um, and actually it was at the Christopher Ewan um, conference that I attended, um, because I do love people, they're probably my first passion, um, I was challenged to not love them more than I love God. And I, I sometimes feel like the social gospel does that, that we often say, in loving this person, I love God more. But that's actually reversing those two commands um, that, that God gave us, is to love the Lord your God 
with, with all your heart first and then love your neighbor as yourself. So that's been something I have felt um, really challenged with lately is to make sure that um, God is my first love, that, that he is loved more than my neighbor, which I'm sometimes a bit more fickle because my neighbor's right in front of me and um, so... Yeah, I think um, the way that that we would translate, I think what it yes. is that you're you're mentioning is that well, I would I would frame it in introspective Christian practice. I, I don't know what you, what you would think about that, Dave, but but that um, because I actually do I do see um, I don't see as much of a hierarchy between love of God and love of neighbor, but that that the love of God takes place in love of neighbor, like a hundred percent, and but that as we um, self-examine ourselves, which is um, introspective Christian practice or as we check our hearts that what we do uh, is a gift to the Lord or, or like Colossians mm-hmm. 323 about, about working for the Lord um, so that, that's how I would I would frame what it is that okay. you're talking about just a, I, I love that just as a as a moment of checking ourselves not that like it is not just about loving our neighbor or just trying yeah. to love your neighbor really well but that it is really um, synonymous with loving God and that they are hmm. one and yeah. the same yeah. yeah, that's mm-hmm. something I'm I'm really trying to reconcile. I, that's a, a new challenge in my life mm. because I um, I love to give and to love and and doing that um, I do love the Lord more. Like it makes mm-hmm. my faith richer. But I do still want to be very grounded in the Scripture and grounded in good theology. And it's. For me, as a mom, as a you know, wife, as all of these hats that you mm. wear, it's it's dividing the time up and making sure that the time spent with the Lord is is rich and um, is is going deeper as are my as are my relationships with others. I wonder if the the biblical language of uh, of idolatry actually hmm. might yeah. might be sort of a, yes. an angle into this because it's it's actually about uh, things being in right order or yes, being out absolutely. of order, right? And so, uh, love of neighbor, which is of course a command, uh, that, that that can almost become an idol yes. that's out of, that's out of order. Or you mentioned the different hats you're wearing. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, whether it's a spouse or our children or whatever, our families can become. You know, we're not worshiping our families, right? But in our time commitments or in our like, I think what you're alluding to mm-hmm. is actually about rightly ordered, um, uh, rightly ordered loves. Uh, yes. And 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 that that in and of itself is worship. And so I'm thinking of that. Even in our in our classroom context, right? So, mm-hmm. even teaching, even faith and learning, heck, Riley, even this podcast, right, needs to be rightly ordered in terms of what our priorities are and what we. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds so cliche or so simplistic, right? Like God first or, or whatever, but it's not. I mean that 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 is going to. Uh, I know you're pushing back a little bit, Riley, against hierarchy, but it is it's that it will it will cascade down, right? Yeah, I don't know if I'm pushing back against hierarchy as much as I am saying that, like, uh, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I don't know. I, now, now I'm trying to it's think back to what, and. yeah, it's, bo- it's both it ends. Already, you've already talked about Bob Goff, so uh, we can continue to move on to some of your other passions. But uh, you are interested in the fine arts, and as I'm as I wrote this question and thinking about asking you how you see faith permeating um, your experience in the fine arts, and then also your teaching practice, I was very much reminded of uh, my own grade <laughs> four experience when. Um, like my like it was our entire class that performed this i don't know if you call it a drime or whatever to the keith green prodigal son um song and i can still i can like hear i can still hear it in my head as as we are mentioning this very moment so how about you take it away talking about um how you see uh faith permeating fine arts just in general and then also how that impacts uh the grade four context Yes, I love that prodigal son. <laughs> Drime, that's a good way to describe it. I have done it a few year, a few times subsequently as well, and um, it is, it's a great experience. Um, 
I, yes, I'm passionate about the fine arts. I think that experiencing God in the process of creating something beautiful um, is a really intimate experience. And um, so expressing yourself through a creative medium, whatever that medium is, for me it's often, it's dance, which is my first um, artistic endeavor, um, but music moves me and visual art moves me. So expressing yourself um, through a creative medium takes you to quite a vulnerable place and um, kind of exposes us in ways that represent parts of who we are inside that we kind of keep hidden. Um, I often think that it is it's a good excuse to be able to express yourself because it's, it's as much as it represents you, it's also um, separate from you. It represents something else that's also going on. Um, but I, I think it, it puts on display, um, it puts yourself on display, but it also welcomes discretion from others. Um, it welcomes opinion, point of view, judgment. Um, and that in itself is being really vulnerable because it's saying, you know, this is how I feel about something. I'm expressing it this way. And art is a subjective you know, it's a subjective field. It's a subjective forum. And so when you expose yourself like that, um, it's allowing others to enter into areas that, you know, maybe you have wanted to hide or maybe are harder to express. So I think giving kids the opportunity to do that, um, nine-year-olds sometimes don't get to, you know, these deep, deep levels, but, um, you know, you mentioned the, the prodigal son and um, it's, it's a process that I often take the kids through in teaching them, you know, restorative justice. Like what happened between not just the father and the son, but, you know, the brother, and then all of the broken paths that the prodigal son um, took along his way back to restoring a relationship with his dad or restoring a relationship um, that uh, he had really taken advantage of or such. So that that is the depths that I can take kids, nine-year-olds to in that regard. Um, but even in, you know, like, counseling there's like play therapy right so it's something that's outward I think that too is a creative process it's a way or a medium of expressing something that's hard to look at face to face and so it's um I think it's a very beautiful place even if you're representing brokenness um art in my estimation, is 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 very beautiful, and so I love the opportunity to create beauty, and to do that um, alongside the Lord in um, in a faith-based way is a really it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. Well, my first question is: Do you still do the Prodigal Son drama, drime, dance thing? I, I, I do, uh, periodically. Like, um, I think I did it three or four years ago. Okay. It depends on how much I'm actually in the classroom because I've been part-time and job sharing and such, so it's a bit of an endeavor. I, um, yes, I love it because we share it at the end of the year um, in June. We try to do it for Father's Day, so I want to honor uh, a male figure in these kids' lives. So whether it be their dad or a grandfather or someone. Um, but um, it's also a lovely way to um, bind together at the end of a year and to culminate our experience through something that is creative. And so yes, I still periodically do it. I have, um, he wrote a song about the Good Samaritan. Um, that I thought maybe this year I would do. <laughs> so anyway, yes, I sometimes still do that. 
I still one of my most vivid memories of grade four. I remember that and a lot of Hershey's Kisses and lots yes. more, but mo- most vivid memories for sure. I do give a lot of kisses and Hershey's. <laughs> so as I was reading through uh, these interview questions Riley put together and uh, knowing of you but not a lot about you, that uh, you work with pre-service teachers mm-hmm. at Trinity Western. And, and so this whole conversation of faith and learning and even translation and development levels, so you're, you're working with university students, but who are interested in, in becoming teachers. Um, how, how does faith play, play into that domain uh, that you work in? Yeah, I considered that question because I think faith is, faith is who we are if if we love the Lord. And so it doesn't really change from one experience or one interaction, or we've talked about the continuum, whether you're teaching grade nines or, or sorry, nine-year-olds or 15-year-olds. Um, so I think that faith-wise, um, yeah, relating to university students, um, the the experiences are actually very similar. They might be on a more mature level. Um, I think we talked about earlier, the intellectual level of interaction is it's a little bit more stimulating than grade four, so I really love that aspect of it. Um, my, I, I love mentoring these students, and I think my biggest goal is to... Um, is to join the theory and the practice and to close that gap and to there's such a chasm that happens between the academic world and what we're doing right here this grunt work as teachers and so um why i love being in this fifth year practicum year is that that happens and it's like this collision of oh I've got all of this theory that has just been like poured into my brain and yes you do things on you know a simulating kind of context in a, where you role play or you know they've done some practicums but there is nothing like being given your first class and your full immersion <laughs> in your fifth year and um Primarily, it's often on the management level, of which is a great place to integrate your faith because the whole notion of respecting these students and honoring these students, um, these student teachers are, are placed in public schools, and so they're not at liberty to you know, speak scripture into these kids' lives, but they are definitely scripture in these, these kids' lives. And um, you know, there's, there's a struggle with that sometimes, I think, because they, they still have this I think it's fear-based that they want to, you know, be gentle with these kids and and um, this whole notion of respect and affirming, but um, the relationship between them and their students, as we know, um, it gets much deeper when you come head to head or when the class sees them. <laughs> fall apart or lose control and then say, I really need your respect or I, um, I've made a mistake here, let's regroup. So that, the theory of like classroom management, for example, is, um, is very, very different than the practice. So with these fifth year students, that is the most exciting thing that I see, uh, formulating a lesson plan it can just look so perfect on paper. And then they will have 10 interruptions during their lesson. And as somewhat seasoned teachers, we we have, <laughs> we, we, we know what to do in those. We've got these little things in our pocket that we can pull out or, um, but to, to watch them sometimes have deer in headlight looks or sometimes just be like, okay, we've got to regroup and turn, turn the train here. Um, it's exciting to see that because I really believe that you, 
you know, you can't be more patient unless you have to practice patience, and you can't be more faithful unless your faith is tested, and you can't be kinder unless you've had an enemy be really awful to you. And so that is happening in this practicum year. They cannot manage a class until they're given kids who really challenge them. <laughs> well, what's neat about all of this is you're speaking really to transcendent things, it, it, that it, it transcends the context of, of nine-year-olds or, you know, like, what are you, 22, mm-hmm. 23? And totally. Uh, you know, like, so, um, yeah, there's there's a universal aspect to this, and uh, and you've been tapping into it. When that question was posed, I thought, well, there's not really much of a difference. Um, I try to talk to my nine-year-olds like they're little adults, so it's not even like a kindergartner where sometimes you really have to be, you have to use a different teacher voice, maybe, I don't know. But, um, so yeah, it's really not very, very different. It's, like I said, the intellectual stimulation is wonderful. I glean so much as a professional from watching them and from being in their classrooms, and they are so innovative, and they, their practice, um, theoretically, um, is exciting to actually take from, because sometimes with experience, you can more quickly put that into kind of a hands-on experience, and so I am gleaning professionally from it. It's, um, it's pro-D every time I get to observe them in the classroom. Mm. Well, speaking of professional development, or, or for pleasure, we always ask each guest what it is that they are reading. Oh, uh, and this is, this is one of my favorite uh, questions because, well, actually, recently it's been, uh, teacher life is sometimes so busy, I have not found a lot of time to read, but I always love listening to what other people are reading. So um, whether it's for pleasure or professional development, what are you reading? <coughs> I know I laughed at this question because I love to read, but like you said, um, it's uh, finding the time. It's this time thing. Um, So I always have a stack of books next to my bedside. Um, I've got books in my backpack. I've got books on my bookshelf. And so when you asked, I thought I looked over at my stack and I, I... use the analogy, it's taller than I am. It's not quite taller than I am, but it is really, really tall, and there's a splattering of, of every type of genre. Um, and I do like to have a bunch of genres kind of on the go. Um, so for pleasure right now, I'm reading this really wonderful book called Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which is the story of Joy Davidson and her relationship with C.S. Lewis. Um, it was recommended to me um, by a member of my book club. And um, it is beautiful. It's beautifully written because Joy Davidson, um, I believe that was her last name, um, she was a writer, a poet, and then of course we know so much of C.S. Lewis's work. And, um, And she was married also to a writer prior to marrying C.S. Lewis. So it is beautifully written. So I've, I've only about maybe three quarters of the way through, and it's, it's a really delightful read. I've read a lot of their relationship, but this is a, a kind of a fresh look at it. Um, I'm reading a book called The War That Saved My Life, which was recommended to me by my daughter, um, who is now in grade five, but she's an avid reader. She reads a book every three days. And so she will recommend her favorites to me. And so I just kind of add them to the stack. And it keeps me relevant in my own classroom. I've got books to recommend to my kids. And um, so uh, it's it's a, actually a, a lovely little book um, and has some great truths in it. So um, for pleasure. <laughs> I'm reading the British Vogue magazine. Um, Meghan Markle co-edited it, and we couldn't get it here in Canada. So I had family that were there, were in the UK in the summer. So they brought that home, and um, it's a, I saw the edition. Actually, there was a little documentary that was done on it, and it was all these female world changers. And then there's a on the cover, there's a a picture of a mirror that you know, as a woman, you're looking into the mirror, and so it. It's um, it's great. It's 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 a curious read. So, um, I'm reading the fall quarterly edition of Magnolia Journal, which is Chip and Joanna's magazine. Uh, we're doing a home reno, so 
<laughs> I'm trying to glean from that and her recent book called Homebody, um, which is just, it's a design book. But um, I started the book called Eve, which is written by the same author as The Shack. And um, I was actually going to abandon it until uh, the person who gave it to me said, oh, it's got a surprise ending. So I've returned to that. So there is my for pleasure stack. <laughs> For Prodi, yeah, for Prodi. I know I'm I'm a, a bit embarrassed because um, sometimes Prodi, it it's just imposed. It's it, they're textbooks, right? So, um, Riley, you and I have talked about the uh, the visible learning ten obsession. mind frames. Yes. So I read the ten mind frames this summer. Um, so I am I am curious. I love that. The 10 mind frames, the visible learning is research-based. Um, and yeah, a lot of it actually resonates for me. I'm looking at it from fresh, from a fresh perspective of my student teachers and my experience at, at Trinity, um, which is actually allowed me to make it more practical for what I'm doing. Not that it's not practical, but it's very uh, research theory-based. Yeah, theory-heavy. Totally. And so, um, yeah, it's uh, how to put that all into the into practice, which actually I was at a Pro-D on Friday. Um, I went to the math conference and um, there were a lot of, I went to three workshops, all of which really made a very practical connection to these mind frames and the visible learning. And it was it was about the thinking classroom. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was enlightening. It's, it's nice when you have a practical light shed on something that you're trying to wrap your head around the theory of. Um, I'm reading a book called The Ted, Ten Touchstones of Education, or of Learning, I think that is. It's, it's a Trinity textbook and actually a lot of it is similar to the visible learning they it's about these checklists as teachers of things that are important and so it's for new teachers but but it, it's good um, I, I call this pro D because I always look for new ways actually to integrate my faith into the classroom and I was recommended the Max Licato's book tell me the secrets have either of you heard of this? Not it is a treasure. It is beautiful. After reading it to my children this summer, um, tr trying to decide how I could incorporate it into my my uh, classroom, I discovered that there was a tell me tell me the story. I believe was the first book that was written of the tell me series. Um, Tell Me the Secrets is absolutely beautiful. Um, it's written by Max Licato, who is such a great storyteller. And he actually references a lot of his other You Are Special books in it. Mm. Um, I think, actually, it's a book that um, is probably more useful in middle school grades um, because it deals with these big truths and again, shows you how practically God wants you to live those truths out. So, you know, one of the truths is, or, or one of the, the issues is death. And I was absolutely weeping by the end of reading this chapter and the way that Max Licato tied this amazing story in and a fresh new look on death. So these big, I don't know, I guess you can call them maybe they're not truths, they're big issues. How to talk about them with kids is something that I always like to um, just have a, a lot of resource in. And so this book did that for me. It, um, yeah, it, it's a beautiful book. So I'm reading the second of that. It looks like a picture book, but it's it's very rich in, in theology. Um, I, I said I'm always yeah. referencing the Bob, Bob Goff, Goff of course. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. I think we'll we'll wrap things up here. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to share? And where could our listeners maybe learn more about you? <laughs> uh, well, you know, right. I was going to just, you know, 
give a hats off to you and to tell you what an inspiration you are to me. Um, I, I my pro D goal this year was to to glean more from my colleagues, and so doing this, having this experience with you, I just thought about what an inspiration your enthusiasm and your passion is, and how um, that is very contagious. And it's actually challenged me to just continue looking at my own practice and how it's evolving and how to refine that. And so. Thank you very much, because you're a lovely example. <laughs> I don't see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you asked where you can find me. For very personal reasons, I am... I don't subscribe to any social media. I'm at 507 Garfield Street in New Westminster, and you're welcome to have my phone number, as Bob Goff gives, um, and text me, and we can have a good walk and talk up the grind or through the forest or along the seawall. Those are my favorite ways of, of uh, getting in touch with people. I love it. No social media, but address on the podcast. Absolutely. I love, I love address, it. Absolutely. and I would give my phone number as well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we thank you so much for, for coming. Welcome. This has been enlightening, and then we're, we're very glad that we can hear from um, uh, different divisions. It's uh, very helpful. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Juliet, my former grade four teacher. Uh, it was really great to hear from her and to also hear a voice that is in... Um, well, before grade six, a teacher that teaches students that are younger than my students, younger than Dave's students. Uh, this is something that we've been wanting to do for a long time on the show, and I'm glad that we've finally been able to deliver. We hope we can do more of this. Um, it's time for uh, our book club, The Grand Paradox by Ken Weitzma. We're looking at chapter four this week, which is called Wisdom's Folly, and this chapter is on prayer. Uh, to begin, uh, the author addresses uh, the issues with um, certain prayer circles. So we look at things uh, that sound like an infirmary report, like, God, please heal my cold, or Lord, please help Aunt Mildred's big toe, which I find funny because that uh, is something that can sometimes resonate in a middle school prayer uh, classroom prayer. Uh, poor Aunt Mildred and her big toe. And he also talks about beautiful prayers at, at Christian camps where... Um, People just use elaborate words and whatnot, uh, and, and they just sound really good, and they get compliments for how good their prayers sound. And he just says there are issues with these. Uh, and he says that uh, it was really good to hear that he was not the only person who would fall asleep during other people's lengthy, verbose prayers, uh, and that he would start to think about football or movies during such things. So that made me laugh, but uh, he's addressing some very serious and important issues. Um, and he comes up with the idea, or, or maybe he didn't come up with it, but he communicates the idea that uh, that prayer is supposed to be our communication with God. And for him, it's very intimate. And that uh, he realized that in private, prayer was even more meaningful. He talks about how public prayer can be fraught with issues and that New Testament examples seem to be in stark contrast to finding, um, well, this is his quote, but finding himself in a plush living room praying for the person on my left or the greater comfort of the privileged 1% of the humanity living in the developed world. That's scathing. I love it. Uh, he says, true prayer, whether done publicly or privately, is about conversing with and paying attention to God from a posture of humility and a willingness to listen. I think that's beautiful. Uh, he talks about gratitude and humility and how sometimes that's missing in our in our prayer life, that often it's just a big, long to-do list. And he, he compares that to Santa Claus more than, a, uh, than anyone else, and I, I couldn't agree more. And then uh, moving on, he talks about, because it, the last chapter ended with about hearing God, and it's like, well, how do we hear God? How do we know what God wants of us? And he says that conversational prayer that orients us to God rather than prayer that tries to get God to orient himself to us informs our faith and makes it possible. That is, that's another quote that um, has stuck with me to say like, man, like as we we gave this book to the graduates that were walking across the stage at, at the school that I work at. And that is a, that is a really deep and meaningful quote that if I was someone who is in just finishing up grade 12, I would think like, man, that is, that is important for our prayer life, that it's about ourselves reorienting ourselves to God. 
He continues to talk about where God is already speaking as we as we listen for God, but he says that God speaks in nature. We read that in the Psalms, and God speaks in Scripture, and we see that He is um, made manifest through Jesus, which actually He hasn't talked about yet, which I'm assuming will come soon. But uh, we can see clearly God's work uh, fingerprint all over Scripture. To close, he touches on themes of faith, and we looked at last uh, last episode about faith and and what it means to to take a leap of faith and and how important that is. And he uh, he he closes with this. I'll just read this paragraph. There is a tension to such discernment and decision making. That which calls us to act rationally could be the voice of God, which we need to obey, or it can be the voice of folly tempting us to remain safe while ignoring God's trustworthy call to step out in faith. Sometimes when we step out in faith, it flies in the face of wisdom. The art of distinguishing between the two is developed in the steadfast discipline of continuous communication with God. And I think that's beautiful here. My question would be have to do with uh, listening to God and, and we he talked about that God is already speaking in nature and scripture. And um, in many circles, we talk about actually hearing the voice of God. And I would love to hear maybe that. And that's uh, probably maybe an oh, its own book on its own. Um, but are there practices for listening to God that uh, we could suggest? Um, I've heard of, I know things like listening prayer and whatnot, but um, that was not uh, fully fledged out in this chapter. And that would be someplace that I'd be more curious, especially as we, uh, look to our students uh, who are looking to form themselves after high school or even even before that as we read this book. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the interview today and I hope you enjoyed this week's book club um, as you continue to be disciplined in your prayer life and, and learn from this book, The Grand Paradox. Uh, if you want more, not many of you should become teachers. You should go to our website. All the show notes are there. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at not many of you. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on the app of your choice and tell your friends if you can. Uh, We love making this podcast and we really enjoy that you're listening. Have a good one, everyone. Bye-bye.